Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, man. Thanks for, thanks for that uh, welcome and introduction. Great to see all of you here this week. I know this is a, continues to be a tough time with some illnesses and that kind of thing, but it's great to see all of you here this morning. Hope you're enjoying uh, the wonderful weather that we have. As they say, this is this time of year and where we're at right now, this is why we live in Arizona, right? This is why we live in the Phoenix area, because we get to enjoy this beautiful weather. So hopefully you've had a weekend or a time where you've been able to get out a little bit, maybe do some hiking and hanging out at the park. It's a big weekend for football, obviously. Right? I don't know if you guys are football fans, but yesterday a couple amazing things happened. The Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills won playoff games yesterday, which is pretty amazing. Um, I did not get to watch my Broncos yesterday, unfortunately, because they are not in the playoffs. But I did get to see the next best thing, which is the Raiders and the Patriots both lost yesterday. So all we need is for the Cowboys to lose today, and it'll be a perfect football weekend. <laughs> right, Sharon? Right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but of course, hey, we didn't come to talk about football necessarily this morning. We came to talk about God's words to us in the book of Revelation. We are going to continue our series uh, called Revealed on the book of Revelation. You know, last week we dove back into it after being off for a few weeks, and we were in Revelation chapter 11. And as I mentioned last week, Revelation chapter 11, especially the piece that we looked at last week, was a, a great way to, uh, was a good place to kind of ease our way back into the series after being off for a little bit. Uh, it was a kind of passage that was really short, it was straightforward, kind of right to the point. It was really encouraging and hopeful in a lot of ways, and, uh, and, and you know, it didn't take a lot of work to kind of get through some symbolism. There wasn't a ton of symbolism in that passage last week. So it was a little unlike a lot of the other passages in Revelation, and, a lo- uh, and quite a bit unlike what we're going to look at today. Because as I say all that, what we're going to be looking at today in Revelation 12 is basically, uh, in a lot of ways, the opposite of what we saw last week. Uh, there's still a lot of hope in this. We're going to see a lot of hope in this chapter. But at the same time, this is not short. It is really long. It's a long chapter. Uh, it's not to the point. We're going to see a lot of symbolism in this, and we're going to have to do a lot of work to kind of get to the meaning of it all. But I promise you it's going to be worth the work this morning uh, because this is one of the great chapters in the book of Revelation. It's one of the iconic ones. We're going to see that here in a minute, the reason for that. And I think the payoff is huge in terms of us understanding, its when we, we get to a place of understanding its meaning and the real true hope that it provides us. And it might not seem like a hopeful chapter. I know maybe if you're looking in your Bible and you're looking at chapter 12 in Revelation, you might see a heading that says the woman and the dragon, right? Doesn't seem that hopeful. And as you're skimming through it, you might see that there is a scene where a seven-headed dragon is trying to eat a child. And so that may not seem hopeful, uh, but, but like a lot of other things in pure kind of book of Revelation style, there's a lot more that is kind of behind the scenes than at first glance. And so we're going to see that come to the surface here today. So we've got a lot to get to, get to this morning, and I think it'll help us to kind of do a little bit of setting up before we read this chapter so that you're not taken off guard, because it is a striking chapter in a lot of ways, and so I want to present to you kind of what we're looking at here this morning. First of all, we are looking at a scene that comes from John's uh, Revelation vision, a scene about a seven-headed dragon who is trying to eat a child and then fights an army of angels, and he chases a woman who runs out into the wilderness. This woman's there for a thousand days, and he keeps pursuing her and attacking her, and one of the ways he attacks her is with a cataclysmic flood that's then swallowed up by the earth. And, uh, and by the end of this whole thing, we've got the dragon who's standing on the sea looking for what's to come next. And so we've got really just this quintessential revelation chapter. In fact, 
This chapter is kind of one of the reasons why Revelation gets the reputation that it does. We see all this kind of otherworldly imagery as we look at this. And I think uh, one thing we want to realize, though, is that there is a design to all of this. This chapter plays out like a short story, which we're going to find actually functions as a summary of a greater story. And the greater story that we're talking about here is really the biblical story as a whole. We see this, this, this representation of a short story with all these symbolisms that actually represent for us a summary of the biblical story from beginning to end. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And the function of how it plays out is kind of like, it reminds me a little bit of a recap of a TV show. And maybe I watched too much Netflix, but this just kind of hit me as I was reading through this this week. It seems like one of those recaps. Like if you're watching a show that you're streaming or whatever, and you know that before a season or before the episode, sometimes they provide a recap for you that is a splicing or a montage of all these different scenes that have happened. And the, the purpose of that recap is to catch you up to where you're at so that you can get ready to watch the episode that you're about to watch. Well, in a lot of ways, this is kind of what uh, Revelation chapter 12 does for us. It presents to us all these scenes that put together a story for us that ground us in the place that we are supposed to be within the story and then prepares us for what's coming next because the chapters that are going to come next are, are going uh, to be somewhat like this. They're going to build upon this summary and this idea. And so I think if we do this right this morning, uh, this is going to be really fun and encouraging for all of us, okay? So you're ready to tackle this? Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read it all as one whole unit, and I would encourage you if you have your Bible with you to open up your Bible or your Bible app so you can follow, through, follow along with me. It's going to help you understand this. We're going to be in the ESV translation, so that it'll help you kind of track with that as well. Um, I want to warn you ahead of time, this is a story that kind of uh, zigzags a little bit. It goes from like a scene, scenes on the earth to scenes in heaven and back. Um, it, it, if you feel like you're getting a little lost in it, just kind of bear with me. We'll, we'll explain it as we, as we get done, and, and, and once we finish, we'll kind of go into a little bit more of an explanation of what we're reading. But as you can, follow as best as you can through the story. I feel like I'm going to sit down and read you a short story. These are kind of like the stories from the apocalypse. So here we go. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And this is John reporting what he sees uh, in this vision. And he said, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, with a head, uh, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love they loved not their lives even unto death. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to, to, help, uh, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured uh, from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right. So you all still with me this morning? Okay, uh, probably not the uh, bedtime story that you're going to read to your five-year-old tonight, um, but it is a story, like I said, that is full of encouragement. We're going to go through this a little bit as this story plays out and talk about really the imagery and the meaning behind the imagery that we see in this story. The focus, of course, begins with a woman, and we're told that this woman is about to give birth. Literally, she is in labor pains already, and just as she is getting ready to give birth, a red dragon with seven heads and seven crowns on those heads appears in the scene. And if your imagination is failing you this morning, you're thinking to yourself, what would a red dragon with seven heads look like? Uh, you'll be happy to know that the internet does not let us down. You can go on the internet and find a bunch of renderings of this. This is one of the most popular images in the book of Revelation. I brought a few of these images with me that I found on Google. There's one. There's probably kind of maybe what a red dragon with seven heads might look like. There's another one, another interpretation of this with the woman in this case. And then again, another one with the woman in that case. So something maybe to that effect, but regardless of you know, how it actually looked with John, I mean, the Bible's not a picture book, so John doesn't draw us a picture of what he sees here, but what we, what we get the impression of is this is a scary, intimidating, striking scene that's playing out before John. And as he sees this, the dragon is described as one who is ready to devour the newborn baby. But the newborn baby, who is a male child, uh, who is described as the one who will rule all the nations, esca apparently escapes the attempt of the dragon to devour him and ends up ascending to the throne of heaven. He's caught up to the throne of God. Now once all this happens, a war erupts in heaven between the dragon and his spiritual army and the angels of God, that forces, those forces which are led by the archangel named Michael. And the dragon and his angels lose the war and he's thrown out of heaven onto the earth where he's furious about losing the war in heaven. And he's so furious that he goes and he chases after the woman who had given birth to the son in order to attack her. The woman is protected by fleeing into the wilderness to a place that God prepares for her and where she, received protection, where she will receive protection from the dragon. In response, the dragon gets even more furious and launches an attack towards her in the form of a flood from his mouth that the earth then swallows up in protection of the woman. The dragon gets furious, even more furious, with his lost war and his failed attempts to attack the woman so that he goes after the offspring of the woman and tries to attack them and find them wherever they may be. And by the end of the vision, he's seen standing right by the sea, which is a bit of a cliffhanger and a bit of a foreshadowing, as we'll talk about here in a minute, towards the chapters that are going to come. Now, Let's talk about more of the details here. What do each one of these things represent, especially in breaking down the symbolism in this chapter? Well, first of all, I think the, the woman is best seen as 
representing God's people, both Israel in the Old Testament and then the church in the New Testament. She gives birth to a male child who is the ruler of all nations and who ascends to the throne of God. Now, who is that male child then? Everyone together, right? The Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? This is Jesus. The male child is, of course, Jesus. And, and we'll get into his role in the, sto- uh, in the story in a few minutes, but of course then we have the, the dragon in the background, or the dragon who is active throughout this entire story, who's this menacing character throughout the entire story, trying to attack first the woman, and then the child, and then also the offspring, the remaining offspring that come from the woman. Now at this point it's important to note that all of this imagery, the woman, the offspring, and the dragon, is deeply rooted in the biblical story. In fact, it's rooted all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, uh, in, the chapter, in chapter 3, Genesis 3. So we go all the way back to Genesis 3, and what we see is that this scene happens immediately after the sin of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam, we, may, we may know the story, Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, of course, sin against God. God tells them not to eat of the fruit of the tree. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as a result, the curse comes in Genesis chapter 3. And and Genesis 3 is basically God's response to what they have done. And he describes to them what sin has done. It's broken all of the good creation. He goes down the list talking about things like labor pains and childbirth, uh, which we actually see a reference to this as well in Revelation chapter 12. He talks about thorns and and sickness and death. Basically all that sin does to a good creation to bring the curse down upon it. And it ends with Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. This place where they had dwelt in perfect fellowship with God and a perfect environment is now completely broken. And they're outside of the garden. And the middle of all that mess, though, in Genesis 3, is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It's a verse where, in the midst of all the curse and everything that's happened there, God promises to do something about the effects of humanity's sin against him. He promises to do something about this curse, something about this broken creation. And he makes this amazing promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, and he's talking, by the way, to Satan, the serpent, when he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this significant verse is so well known and so important in Scripture that, that it actually has its own name. It has its own title. It's, it's called by biblical scholars, often referred to by biblical scholars, as the Proto-Evangelium. Now, you know if you get a Latin phrase that describes you, you're probably pretty important. And in this case, this verse feels hugely important because Proto-Evangelium means literally first gospel. So as we recognize, this is the first time in Scripture, and it's just in the third chapter of the very first book, that we see a hint of the good news that will ultimately become the gospel of Jesus. And what we see here is this imagery is very similar to what we get in a place like Revelation chapter 12, namely that there is a child, a woman, and a serpent. And as Revelation 12 actually says, that dragon who is Satan is the ancient serpent. And of course, what's more ancient than the very beginning story of the Bible? That ancient serpent, the serpent who was in the ancient garden. And it's, so it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty easy to see the direct connection that is being made between Revelation 12 and God's promise in Genesis 3. Because from this point on, from, from the point of Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of the Bible, the biblical story then is in large part about how God is going to accomplish this promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. How is he going to crush the head of the serpent through the offspring of the woman? And we get hints and promises throughout Scripture as you continue to read through the biblical story. 
of how this is going to come together. It starts with God's promise to Abraham that his offspring will be a great nation. This offspring becomes Israel, and then out of Israel's throne, God goes to David and makes a promise that there'll be an eternal king that will come in his lineage. And then we go to places like the Old Testament prophets where we see that there are prophecies of a king who will come with his kingdom. One of the places that we see that most most vividly represented is in Daniel, where Daniel has a vision of a son of man who will be a human being that rules all the nations and all the kingdoms for eternity. And then it's all tied up and given to a promise to Mary by the time we get to the New Testament. If you look at the Annunciation to Mary from the angel Gabriel, he says he ties all of these promises up and says this is who the child will be. He will be the son of God he will be one who is born of a virgin. He will be one who is, who is going to bring the kingdom of David to earth that has been promised from the beginning. And he, is, he will be the one who will set his people free. Now as we return to Revelation 12 with all of that in the background, we see that this woman is giving birth to a child who will ascend to God's throne. And the connection is made that the importance of this woman is the child that comes from her. So the focus then is on the child ultimately. And the question is, is the imagery about just one woman, or is it about something more? And I think there are some differing opinions, honestly, on how this is interpreted at times. But I think if you look at the context, especially the imagery of the woman as it stretches throughout the entire scene all the way to the end of verse 17, I think what we see is that this woman at times in this story represents Eve, this times in the story represents Mary, also represents the people of Israel, and also represents the church by the end. So you see that kind of stretched out throughout the entire vision here. And it's carried on through, and, and the promise of this is carried on from Eve through the descendants of Abraham, then to Mary, and then into the church. Which then brings us to the dragon. As we have identified, the dragon represents Satan. He's identified that way specifically in verse 9, where he's called the ancient serpent. Now, this scene is all about God's redemption to redeem his creation, to save and reconcile God's people. So keep that in mind. So the reason why the dragon is so upset and the reason why he gets so enraged is that what he's trying to do is to thwart God's plan of redemption. And he recognizes that it comes and it hangs on this child who was born of the woman. Because remember back in Genesis chapter 3 and the curse, God addressed this to the serpent, the ancient serpent. He said there will be a child who comes from the woman who will crush your head. And so since that time, Satan has been bent on destroying God's plan, knowing that if he can get to this child, this offspring who was promised to crush his head, he can destroy and thwart God's plan. So he goes after first the child, and when he fails at that, he chases after the woman, trying to devour her, and when he can't get to her, he goes after the rest of her offspring. And I think we, we see actually real examples of this in the biblical story of the, of the dragon trying to at attack the child. You can see it as something as direct as Herod's edict to kill all the male infants after Jesus' birth, shortly after Jesus' birth. From that time forward during Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan pursues Jesus to try to have him killed or ultimately to throw him off of his calling and his ministry. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is an example, which is another connection to Revelation 12, the wilderness there. We'll get to that in a minute. And then the crucifixion, of course, where it may have appeared for a moment that Satan had finally succeeded at devouring and killing this child. At least it seemed like that for a couple of days until the resurrection when it was clear finally that the dragon had lost. 
And you see in verse 5 in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the child being a ruler, but also this child who is caught up to God's throne, which is a direct reference to the victory of Jesus seen in the resurrection and his ascension to the throne. That is the victory, the final victory of Jesus. In other words, once this happens, Satan, that dragon, is defeated once and for all. And this victory is so decisive that it effectively removes Satan from his place of power. Notice that as you see in verses 5 and 6, they're talking about what happens when Jesus ascends to the throne. But then we switch to a vision of heaven where we see this battle going on in the spiritual realms. And this fighting that happens is not so much about, even though it mentions the archangel Michael and the armies of angels that are fighting against the dragon, it's not so much about Michael and the angels defeating the dragon as it is about the fact that the child who has risen from the dead and ascended to the throne of God has once and for all defeated the dragon. And the corresponding scene in heaven, according to what has gone on on the earth, is seen here in this vision that John sees of Satan the dragon falling to earth. It's a picture of his defeat. It's a picture of whatever authority and power he thought he had was removed from him, and he's thrown to the earth. And we're being told that at that point, Satan was essentially defeated, that the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the throne means that Satan has already been defeated. And even though he continues, and even though we wait for final judgment, and for the final judgment of Satan, he is essentially a defeated enemy. You know, I've heard the resurrection of Jesus referred to as spiritual D-Day. Maybe you've heard that before. It, of course, reminds us of, it's, it's meant to remind us of the, of the D-Day invasion that happened on, uh, on, on the shores of Normandy during World War II when the Allies invaded Normandy. And one thing we know, if you're, I'm a World War II guy, I like, I like World War II history, so this kind of speaks to me, but if you're not familiar with it, it was the D-Day victory that allowed the Allies to basically take hold of Europe. And once when we realized, kind of looking back, and really on that day, we kind of knew this as well, uh, that once the Allies were able to take the beaches at Normandy, the war was essentially over, over, at least the war in Europe. And Germany continued to fight on for months after that, but at at that point, they were essentially a defeated enemy. It was only a matter of time until the Allies would march into Berlin and essentially end the Nazi regime. Same kind of thing is happening spiritually here, that once Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, victory was secure. And since that time, Satan still fights, but he fights as a defeated enemy. And the evidence of this defeat is called out, by the way, in verses 12 through, or 10 through 11 in, in chapter 12 here. The response of the loud voice that calls out, we've learned this in Revelation already, when we hear the loud voice coming, when John says, I hear a loud voice, Uh, What he's essentially saying is that the multitudes of those who are Christ followers, those who have been sealed by the Lamb, are singing out praises to what Jesus has done on their behalf. And as we've seen before, in many ways, their words that they sing out provide kind of a theological narration. If we're wondering what's happening in the scene and and its implications theologically, we read the words of what these great voices, what these great multitudes are singing, And we see the impact of this. And what is being told here is that as these voices cry out, they are crying out because they have been saved by the Lamb. And they've been saved by the one specifically who is the accuser who brings accusations against God's people. In other words, the accuser can no longer accuse God's people because they are not guilty any longer. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, they are not dead in their sin. They are made innocent by the Lamb's death and alive by his resurrection. 
and they will rule with him for eternity because he has ascended to the throne of God in heaven. And they're covered completely by his victory, which is why they can rejoice here. They basically look at the accuser and say, bring whatever accusation you have because I stand innocent because of the blood of the Lamb. Bring whatever threat you have because you cannot take my life, you cannot take my my spiritual life because I am alive in Christ for eternity. And bring whatever defeat you may think you have because I have victory in the one who has ascended to the right hand of God. And so the devil realizes this. As he's cast down to the earth, he gets angry. And one of the things that the, uh, one of the, things that the great voice of these multitudes sing out is that he is angry because he realizes that his time is short. He knows that he is a defeated foe, and it enrages him and causes him to chase after even more furiously the offspring of God. So when the, swe- the scene then switches back to verse 13, where we see a scene on the earth, we can see this as the church age, right? Which, after, which started after the ascension of Jesus and after the coming of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. So this dragon, this defeated enemy, lashes out in anger against the church. Knowing that he cannot defeat them, he still chases them and attacks them out of his bitterness and anger. I've had uh, people ask me before, why is it if Satan knows that he is defeated, why is it that he continues to fight? Well, this is part of the reason why. Have you ever wondered why Satan continues to attack even though he knows he's defeated? He is spiteful and angry, although he, know, although he knows that he can't defeat uh, God's plan. And, and, and because of that spite and that anger, he's trying to take as many people as he can as possible into his judgment that he will face in the last days. Besides that, he strikes me as the kind of being that just loves chaos and destruction. He loves to create chaos and destruction and death in God's good creation as much as possible. It's kind of like the Joker from Batman. Some men just like to see the world burn. You know, if you're, I don't know if you remember that quote, but it was a Michael Caine quote, the the best Alfred ever to play, or the best uh, actor ever to play Alfred. But anyway, he says, some men just like to see the world burn. That's Satan. He just loves to see the world burn. He loves to see chaos and destruction. Notice, though, as the dragon serpent pursues God provides a place of protection for the woman to run into the wilderness. And the dragon pursues her in the wilderness and attacks her with everything that he has, even to the point of sending a river out of his mouth, sending chaos out towards her to try to flood her out and try to drown her. But of course, God responds by allowing the earth to open up, and with his mouth, the earth swallows up the flood. Now, this is a really interesting scene as it closes out this vision because there are all these kind of natural environment references in this. We have the wilderness, we have the river, and we have the actual earth or the ground. And what's kind of amazing about this, and it's in apocalyptic you know, uh, form, is that each one of these things have kind of like a personification, almost like they're characters or actors in this whole thing that plays out. First, let's talk, first we see the wilderness. And the wilderness imagery has a long history in the Bible. Again, you can go all the way back to the first book of the Bible to see this in Genesis. Right When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, where do they go? They go out into the wilderness. And so what we're told from the beginning, or what we see from the beginning, is that in Scripture, wilderness represents other than the garden. Where the garden is a place of blessing, where the garden is a place of, of, of fruitfulness, where it's a place of flourishing, the wilderness is a place where all of those things are absent, or at least they're struggled at. They're, they're only produced through thorns and thistles. 
When you go to the, after, after the Israelites leave Egypt and before they enter the promised land, we know that they are in the wilderness for 40 years. As we talked about earlier, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan before his earthly ministry. And so, on the one hand, right, the wilderness is a place that is other than the garden. It's a place where the curse is seen in kind of full HD. And we know this a little bit by living in the desert. Right? You may have heard the phrase, everything in the desert is trying to kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's a picture in a lot of ways of being able to see the curse in 3D. I mean, we have venomous animals with stingers and fangs everywhere. And even our plants are trying to harm us, right? Have you ever been around a jumping choya? Right? That, if that's not evidence of the curse, I don't know what is. A jumping choya, a cactus that attacks you. Kind of crazy. But the wilderness is a place where thorns and thistles of the curse are more the rule rather than the exception. But the wilderness imagery in the Bible is not just limited to the natural environment of harsh conditions that we live at in this world. It represents the world as it is now. The curse everywhere and at every turn. Not just in natural environments of the desert, but in kingdoms and in kings and in relationships and spirituality and physical health and all the things where the curse is seen. Because it is everywhere, the world we live in is a wilderness with thorn and thistles, which are often more of the rule than the exception. Notice, though, that in Revelation 12, this is the place, the place of the wilderness is the place where God guides the woman. And as she goes out into it, it becomes a place of protection and provision for her. And here's the point. The wilderness is a place of testing precisely because it is a place without. It is a place where brokenness and curse makes it so that we need to rely on God. We need to rely on his presence and his provision to provide for our survival. If you think about when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they relied daily, momentarily, on every moment on the guidance of God leading them through the desert and providing manna that rained from heaven on a daily basis. They were completely dependent upon his presence and provision to even survive that place. It's a place that's full of curse, but a place where God protects us. A place where God protects us spiritually And then this is where, in this scene, the river and the earth come into play. The river that comes from the mouth of the dragon represents chaos and danger and even death. If you go into the ancient world, one of the things that you'll you'll realize if you see kind of writings and understandings of the ancient world is that they approach large bodies of water with fear. Because things like the sea and raging rivers uh, were things that represented chaos and danger. And so... When you think about Jesus' miracle and calming the sea, right? That was evidence of his divinity. At the time, the disciples were freaked out because there was this raging sea all around them. And Jesus calms the sea as a picture of him bringing peace, not only to the sea, but as the one who will bring peace to all creation out of the chaos and the danger and the brokenness of this world. The sea was seen as a constant threat that was chaos untamed. And the river here is a representation of that. As the dragon tries to drown the woman with a flood that comes. But the river of chaos and danger that Satan sends against the woman or against the church, as this represents the church, is swallowed up by a miraculous event. It's swallowed up by the mouth of the earth opening and swallowing the attack of the dragon. And of course, we're meant to understand the only one who can command the earth to act in such a way, to open its mouth and to swallow up the river, would be God himself. And so all of this gives us an understanding of the fact that God's sovereignty protects his people as a part of his plan to reconcile them. And simply put, God's people, all of us, find ourselves in a wilderness world right now. 
It's a time between the garden that we left thousands of years ago and the promised land that is the new creation that will come in the final judgment. And during this time in the wilderness, it's a time of testing and a time of reliance on God, what God provides as he leads us by his presence and provides daily manna for us. It's a place where Satan still attacks, and although we might experience the harm in the wilderness of the world, he cannot ultimately destroy us because God protects us by the victory of Jesus. All of that gives us undying hope as we are covered in Jesus' victory. I think the big takeaway from all of this is wonderful as these images are and as much as they strike us in different ways, there's a big takeaway in all of this and it is just that, that we are covered in the victory of Jesus. This whole story, this whole short story that's given to us here hinges on the victory of Jesus and his cross, resurrection, and ascension. And that's always been true throughout Scripture. And as we're shown again today from this passage, it is this truth that the wilderness is temporary, but God's promises will be fulfilled, and his sovereign goodness can be trusted because of what he's done. You can imagine how that would have helped the original audience. We talked about as this book was written to the original audience, the first century church, who was experiencing persecution because of their faith. One of the questions that they had all the time was, is God, does God see what we are going through? Is God worth it? Is it worth following Jesus? And is God promising something more than what we are experiencing in this world? Or is this wilderness that's in front of us that is full of curses and thorns and thistles all that we have to look forward to? Is God more powerful than Caesar? In the end, is his good purpose going to succeed? And the question for us today is similar to that. How do these things answer our doubts and our questions and our fears about how God works in a world where we look around and we see there's a lot, often a lot more evidence of the thorns and thistles in our lives than there is of the garden. In light of what we talked about today, what doubt do you need to bring to the Lord? Knowing that he cares for you, knowing that he has brought his good purposes to bear for you in Christ. What fear do you have this morning about the wilderness that you live in? And how might understanding that this wilderness is temporary and that in the midst of the wilderness, God is providing for you and he is present with you, how might that help you today? How might that encourage you today? I told you this is an encouraging passage. What kind of guilt and shame are you dealing with today? How does it help you to know that you stand innocent in the victory of Jesus, covered by his righteousness and his salvation on your behalf for those who trust in it? And that the accuser, can bring a lot of things against you, but he can't bring a credible accusation against you because of the victory of Jesus that covers you. What kind of hopeless feelings are you dealing with today because the world doesn't look like it should? How might it help you to know that Jesus is the one who is the ruler of all nations for eternity and that he is even now at the right hand of God ruling from the throne of God in heaven? How might it help you to know that Jesus will once again rule all kingdoms on this earth with righteousness and justice and peace as his throne even exists now. Be encouraged today. I think that's a big message from this. Even as you feel the wilderness all around you, know that he is with you in it. You know, we stop at the end of this chapter and the dragon is standing there on the seashore. We get into the next couple chapters and one thing we're going to see is that there are things that are rising out of the sea. Uh, the dragon doesn't give up. He goes through all that he's gone through in this scene, and he still doesn't give up. 
We're going to see it over and over again. The wilderness is a reality in the world that we live in, but it's also the place where God is present. It's the place that we are in temporarily as we are exiles and strangers in this world looking for our ultimate homeland. And in this world that is not our home, we wait for the one that will be our home. The final place of new creation, the garden city, where Jesus will come to take us back to that place. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, you would impress the hope of your good news on our hearts. We can't help but, uh, I think, just take a step back and see the way that you have worked all this out from the beginning. We literally just went from Genesis to Revelation in your word, from the beginning to the end this morning, seeing your goodness all the way through it. And so, Lord, I pray that where we lack faith, we would be able to see through eyes of faith what you are doing in the world and in our lives even right now. In light of what you have promised, Lord, in light of what is coming, I pray you would fill us with hope. In this book that is designed to get our attention and designed to give us hope, in a chapter like this that kind of knocks us off our feet with the imagery that's present here, I think uh, anyone who reads this and talks about it feels overwhelmed by what's going on in this scene, but when we distill it down and when we boil it down to what you are communicating to us, Lord, it is as true as it ever has been. Lord, that the victory that you promised us in Christ is real, it is true, and it is something that will sustain us to the end. And we pray uh, that we would be able to rest in that, that we know that first and foremost we are covered by Jesus. We are covered by his blood, we are covered by his resurrection, we are covered by his authority and power for eternity. And so I pray that more than anything we would rest in that, in a time where so many of us probably feel like we need rest. Whether it's just physical rest, whether it's emotional, whatever it may be, Lord, give us rest in being able to be covered by the one uh, who has promised to the end that he would bring us into his kingdom. We pray in his kingly name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. What a great song to end on, singing about uh, the victory of Jesus message today was called Covered uh, in the Victory, and so, or, or being covered by the victory, and so hopefully you see that this morning, hopefully you're encouraged by that this week as we step back out into the world, understanding the, the powerful victory that we have in Christ. You know, next week we are going to get into um, uh, chapter 13. Um, if you were reading through this and you saw the seven crowns reference to the uh, to, the, to the dragon and all that, and you're wondering, okay, are you going to talk about that? We'll talk about it, but it, we'll talk about it next week because it connects a lot more with what we're going to be looking at next week. So there's a teaser for you to come back, hear about the seven crowns and how it plays into uh, Revelation chapter 13. Um, but as we, as we leave here this morning, I want, I want you to be reminded of the fact that, uh, of the fact of, uh, of what we've been talking about this morning, that God, what God has done 
on our behalf. That he sees what you're going through. We can come just as we just sung. We can come to bring his fear, our fears to his feet, our doubts to his feet, and know that in the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension of Jesus, those have been answered for us. And so, as a result, God invites us into faith, even in the midst of the wilderness, knowing that we have been covered and protected by the Lamb. And so, draw that as encouragement this morning as we close. As we close, if you need some prayer, uh, Steve's over there. I believe Steve's our prayer partner, right? That's, that's what you're doing over there, you're just hanging out by the wall. Or, yeah, he's our prayer partner, okay? So, if you, if, you, uh, if you need someone to pray with you, Steve will be happy to pray for you as you pray with you as you leave here this morning. And we also have prayer cards that are located on the table as you leave here. If you have any prayer requests that you would like us to be praying for, I know this is a, again, it's a, it's a heavy time. We keep saying this, but it's okay to say that. It's okay to recognize it, and it's an opportunity for us to join together to bear one another's burdens in prayers. And so we consider that an opportunity. Fill out a prayer request card. Drop it in one of the offering stands as you leave here this morning. We'll make sure that we're praying over that as a staff, as our elder team, and a prayer team. So... Hope you enjoy the wonderful weather that we have out this afternoon, or maybe you're going to watch some football games this afternoon. Have a great afternoon. Uh, Enjoy it. Enjoy what God has blessed you with, Um, life, the ability to draw life and, and draw breath this morning as we continue out through this day. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.